Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Such a good song. Georgia on my mind. There's a lot of good Georgia-related song. songs. Midnight Train to Georgia. That's Classic. a great song. Last night in the Pips, I believe, if I'm correct. Yep, yep, yep. So, the question is, what state has the most songs about it? I would bet California. But I don't know any like obvious California songs. Uh, California Dreaming, Folsom uh, Prison Blues, The yep, Beach Boys yep. alone. I feel like did a lot of help on the California front. Yep, Hotel, Hotel California. California. That's about a hotel. That's where you're wrong. It's not about the state. It just happens to be named California. It doesn't count. Sitting on the dock of the bay. Because he left his home. Well, he left his home in Georgia and he headed for the Frisco Bay. So actually, that's oh, kind of, two in one. That is, a, that is a good one. I do feel like Georgia is actually overrepresented the more we talked about it. See, I feel like I have favorite New Jersey songs because everyone shits on New Jersey all the time. And so I have um, to like defend it. But maybe Georgia is in a more, more sort of secure position uh, in its ranking among the states musically. What is a classic Minnesota song? The only Minnesota song I can think of is when John Candy played that polka player in Home Alone. And one of them was called like the Minneapolis Polka Polka Polka. And I don't <laughs> think that was real, <laughs> but, but, but it did have Minneapolis in the name. As I yeah, it's, it's sadly, and I, I don't know if this is just an expression of the kind of Lutheran upper Midwestern sensibility of never, never uh, drawing attention to oneself. But I'm not sure there are any good Minnesota songs. What about Prince? Yeah. Yeah, but but he's from Minnesota. Apparently, he has a song that's called Rock and Roll is Alive and it lives in Minneapolis. Well, okay. There I we just go. Googled uh, songs about Minnesota <laughs> and that came up at the top. <laughs> Minnesota Historical Society has a, a, a lecture called Funkin' on the North Side. Oh, <laughs> hell yes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rational Security. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am here with both of my other co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Reunited and it feels so good. No? That, that, that was Alan, in case you were on it. Very impressive. Quite a better singing voice than I think we were all expecting. That was actually pretty good. <laughs> Well, in addition to Alan's dulcet tones, we are thrilled to have with us here none other than recent Lawfare superstar, Anna Bauer. Anna, thank you for being here with us here on Rational Security. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. For those listeners who have not yet had the opportunity to meet Anna in the kind of parasocial way that I obviously mean it because it's a podcast, Anna is an intrepid Harvard 3L, if I recall correctly, maybe if I have that wrong, but I think that's right, who has decided to spend their 3L year in the most unlikely of occupations, which is serving as our field correspondent on a variety <laughs> of high-profile litigations around the American Southeast. Anna, what 
what dirt does Ben have on you to hold be able to force you to spend your most relaxing semester of law school in this way? You're supposed to be having senioritis, Anna. You're doing it wrong. Yeah, I, absolutely backwards. Look, I mean, I think to be honest, it might come down to doing anything to avoid going to class. So <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> I respect it. As someone who had a full-time job their 3L year, I respect it. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Impressive. Um, it's a right instinct. Well, we are super excited to have you on because there's been a lot happening, particularly around a little investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, that you have been keeping very close tabs on from inside the courtroom. So we are happy to have you here to talk about that and some other stories here and what we are calling in your honor the When the Bauer Breaks News edition of <laughs> Rational Security. Our first topic this week, the topic clear, nearest and dearest to your heart, you got to know when to Fulton. Pat <laughs> tip to Kenny Rogers on that one. Uh, and our former president, of course. Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis has wrapped up her work with a special purpose grand jury investigating former President Donald Trump and his associates for potential 2020 election interference and has said that charging decisions will be forthcoming. But why did she oppose the public release of the grand jury's report? And what might that tell us about where the case is headed? Topic two. It is happening again. In recent days, the brutal murder of Tyree Nichols by police officers in Memphis, Tennessee, is bringing back to the fore demands for police reform and greater accountability for the violence that our criminal justice system levels disproportionately against Black Americans. What lessons do we need to take from this case? And is there a way forward for change? And topic three, drop the reel. It's cleaner. Former President Donald J. Trump is back on Facebook and Instagram after parent company Meta lifted the permanent ban that had kept him off the platforms for promoting violence in relation to the January 6th insurrection. Is this change the right move, and what might it mean moving forward? For our first topic on the Georgia investigation, Alan, let me hand it over to you. Thank you, Scott. As is my want when there are actual subject matter experts on this podcast, I will very quickly pivot and just ask our subject matter expert to explain what is going on. Uh, for those of us who have not been following every jot and tittle of the Fulton County uh, grand jury investigation, uh, we are very lucky to have you, Anna, because I think perhaps outside the members of the prosecutorial team, wait, is it not jot and tittle? I have never heard jot and tittle before. I think jot and tittle is totally, that's, that's a not, phrase. Wait, it's a is totally, a phrase? it's not even All weird. Right. Maybe it's real. It's a phrase. It's still really, it's still really funny. But go it's on. Not, that's fine. <laughs> it's a child. Gonna, it sounds ridiculous. Anderson, you are a child. <laughs> I regret none of this. I stand by, I stand by my opinion. That's a, that's a silly Scott, thing. Scott, it's from Matthew 518. Yeah. I, I don't think that's Phyllis the original. I, I feel like that lost something in translation when they translated it. <laughs> <laughs> what, is, what is John Tittle in, in the original Greek? All right. Uh, All right, Anna. You know, enough, enough of this, Scott Anderson. Tom Foolery, please, please go through all the jots and all the tittles. <laughs> Explain to us where are we and what's about to happen. Right. Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Um, since May of last year, a special purpose grand jury in Georgia has been investigating potential criminal efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the results of the 2020 election in Georgia. And in Georgia, special purpose grand juries are these kind of 
quirky investigative bodies that aren't authorized to issue indictments. Uh, instead, what they do is they write a report and they can recommend indictments and and maybe make some other recommendations. They could, you know, recommend just further criminal investigation rather than kind of naming names and, and recommending specific charges. Um, so after eight months of Calling witnesses, I believe it was about 75 witnesses in total, um, some of them quite high profile, including people like Lindsey Graham and Mark Meadows. There was a slog of subpoena battles uh, during that eight-month period, and all of it kind of came to an end on January 9th when the grand jury supervising judge, Robert McBurney, issued an order in which he announced that the grand jury had completed its investigation. And in that order, he noted that the grand jurors had submitted their report and they voted to make that report public. So the judge set a hearing for January 24th to determine whether he is required by law to release the report to the public as recommended by the jurors. Uh, he also invited media interveners and, and he invited the district attorney's perspective on the matter. Um, and somewhat surprisingly, the district attorney ended up opposing the public release of the report. Well, let me ask you. So you, you said that it's surprising. I mean, why why is it surprising? I mean, how do these reports usually go? And why wouldn't we expect a prosecutor to want to keep you know, internal deliberations of a grand jury pretty pretty quiet, which is which is what we usually expect with mm-hmm. grand juries generally. I think that that part is not surprising. I, I In the piece that I wrote before the hearing, before we knew what the district attorney's position would be, I kind of noted that, you know, there might be reasons that the district attorney would want to keep the report under seal for the time being. So the publication of the report might bolster some venue transfer motions or kind of allow defendants to say that they've been prejudiced and the district attorney would want to protect against witness intimidation and all of that. But the reason that I think it's surprising is because of the specific position that the district attorney is in as the grand jury's legal advisor and and something that hasn't really been reported on a lot and that I think is very interesting that we learned at this hearing is that Somewhere along the way, the district attorney got out of step with her grand jurors because she could have, you know, persuaded them to wait to submit this report and and request that the grand jury be dissolved until she's made her charging decisions. She could have also asked them to recommend the publication of the report, but only after charging decisions and indictments have been figured out and handed down. So I I think that that's why I'm somewhat surprised, because typically the prosecutors have a pretty good grip and handle on what their grand jurors are thinking and the kind of ways to persuade the grand jury to to do what they want. So I, I think that that's why I'm surprised. It, it's surprising to me that there is that, presumably that there's a disconnect there. Yeah, I found this super interesting. And it actually uh, was giving me uh, Leon Jaworski and the Watergate grand jury vibes, because one of the really interesting sort of 
interactions um, that happens near the end of the Watergate probe is that reportedly, uh, so Jaworski obviously did not end up seeking an indictment for of Nixon for his his role in the Watergate cover up. But the grand jurors said later that they had wanted to indict him and had voted to indict him. And if I recall correctly, uh, one juror said that some people raised both of their hands because they were so committed to holding Nixon accountable. And Jaworski basically said no, um, because in his view, a sitting president could not be indicted. And so this this ends up with the sort of impeachment roadmap being passed to the House of Representatives instead. But that just kind of jumped out at me as a, a interesting parallel example of a a grand jury, obviously the situation is different. It's a federal grand jury. It's not a special grand jury wanting to kind of roar full steam ahead um, and the prosecutor wanting to kind of fall back in another case involving uh, the legal culpability of a current or former president. So I'm kind of curious about what you make Anna and Alan Quinta about, you know, what the potential strategic logic of this is, like what the different, what causes that rift, right? Because it strikes me that it's likely something about incentives and it might give us some sense about where, you know, DA Willis is in relation to the jury. If she wanted to pursue indictments full heartedly and was ready to do it, it doesn't seem like there would be as much reason to hold up the the report if that's what it endorsed, right? Although you could say, well, maybe the report reveals a lot of, and you mentioned this in one of your articles, Anna, reveals a bunch of information that might make the actual now criminal investigation that has to follow, that still has probably has some, you know, bows to tie, I's to dot, T's to cross, jots and tittles to handle. If you, you know, that might complicate that by, you know, pointing a roadmap for people to start intimidating witnesses or building a defense or doing other things to kind of shore up their story that wouldn't be out there already. On the flip side, you know, if Fannie Willis wasn't ready to move forward with charges uh, and the grand jury, you know, recommended moving forward with charges, that's another reason why she wouldn't want to release this. It's kind of interesting. I mean, do you have a sense based off of what kind of we know about her and her decision making, which has seemed, at least in my mind, extremely deliberative and kind of small C conservative, a kind of conventional prosecutors build the case approach as to which way we might be able, what tea leaves we might be able to read from this? Or is that just all too speculative at this stage? I I really don't think that there is a lot that can be read from the tea leaves because, you know, there's been surprisingly, although Fonnie Willis has been very public in terms of, you know, giving interviews to the Washington Post and um, kind of doing these sit downs, and she's been criticized for that. At, and I think that you can, you know, kind of debate whether that's appropriate, because on one hand, she is a prosecutor, but at the same time, she's also an elected official. Um, and so maybe there's kind of more reason for her to be a little bit more media oriented than someone who, you know, is working for DOJ. But there's actually been very few details that have really been coming out about what is going on within the prosecutor's office. And I I think that you're right that I, I think that if I had to guess and speculate, I would think that she's just being very deliberate about the decisions that she's making. And and there might be some disconnect between what the grand jurors want the prosecutor to do. Maybe they want a really expansive 
you know, RICO strategy. And maybe that's something that she's kind of backed away from and wants something more conviction friendly in the sense that she wants to make charging decisions that are more likely and more certain to result in convictions. Also, there are some indications that in December, we saw some filings from uh, the attorneys who represent 11 of the so-called fake electors. There were some indications in those filings between the district attorney's office and, and the attorneys who represent those electors that there might have been some attempts by the district attorney to kind of do a plea negotiation or some kind of immunity deal. Um, a lot of those filings were redacted. So so it's really unclear. Like It could be that she's trying to work out some deals with some people behind the scenes and just needs more time. So, you know, there could be a lot of things going on. And I, I really just there's not enough to be certain um, other than just to speculate. You know, your point about her being elected official, I think, is really interesting and really makes her an interesting kind of counterpoint or parallel to the way we've seen, for example, New York District Attorney's Office approach, the Trump Organization investigation, and other investigations we've seen there, where we've seen them be very lean forward and very publicly lean forward, really incurring media scrutiny, inviting more high-profile events, um, becoming very open about their intent to pursue things against former President Trump and people around them. It strikes me, maybe that reflects different electoral incentives in a way. I mean, in New York State, where former President Trump is not popular, you can have aspirations for statewide office and be pretty, you know, openly antagonistic to former President Trump and pursuing different sort of actions there. I'm not as sure that's true in Georgia. I mean, if she has aspirations outside of Fulton County, which, as I recall, is a fair, relatively blue county, and so probably not facing any direct, you know, electoral penalties there as long as she acts responsibly. But statewide, it seems like if you are going to do something like this that's so high profile, you would need to be a little careful about making sure being deliberate, being extra responsible, taking your due time, and not leaning too hard. And in my mind, that might mean, A, that like you just have, as you've already alluded to, different incentives from the jurors in terms of what sort of charges you might bring, how you may frame them, what sort of facts you lean on from a professional legal perspective as opposed to the juror perspective. And then more fundamentally, there may be just a performative aspect about this saying, I'm going to really think about this and work through it independently in addition to the jurors' views. And where I come out on that, she may not know yet. So yeah, I, I think, take your point, I, we don't know how to anticipate this, but in some ways for somebody who's been so careful about it so far, given that and her seeming political and professional incentives, it makes some sense to me, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one one thing, and I'm super curious for your take on that. One thing be- before we get to that is also, I think that the, the political dynamics in the New York State case are also complicated because uh, Alvin Bragg, who's the Manhattan DA, there'd been reporting that he'd essentially dropped the Stormy Daniels case in looking into Trump until a couple days ago, he suddenly did a 180 degree turn. And there was reporting that he'd impaneled a grand jury and was asking about Trump's role in all of this, which I have no idea how to read that. It I did make me wonder whether he saw Willis kind of moving ahead and was like, oh, man, I don't want her to get all the credit. <laughs> but I think does speak to just the kind of like weird political waters that these DAs are are navigating. I don't know. Anna, what do you make of all that? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
like I take Scott's point. I mean, I think I will say that there are there are a lot of examples, right, of people in Atlanta, like Keisha Lance Bottoms, like people who become prominent figures in Atlanta politics and then kind of can move to the national stage. And and so maybe there's kind of that angle there. I, I, I know that some who have been doubtful of the Fulton County investigation have questioned whether this is some way for Fonnie Willis to kind of just become more recognized nationally and and maybe kind of set herself up for the future. But I, I will say in addition to the kind of political challenges and incentives that you all are mentioning, something that I think has also been just under-recognized here is just the challenges that a local DA's office faces in terms of resources this team that I've been following for months now, I mean, it's the same like two investigators and then like four kind of core team. Fonnie Willis very rarely makes appearances herself in the case. Um, so you have like six or seven people who are working on this thing that is a massive case. It's a massive investigation. And that's just very different from the kind of army of lawyers that DOJ has. And, you know, Fonnie Willis is dealing with another huge, complex RICO case right now involving the rap artist Young Thug. So, you know, there's a lot of considerations that she has beyond just this specific case um, because of the way that her resources are just like much, much uh, more sparse than, you know, maybe a federal investigation would be. Before we wrap this segment up, I do want to just ask all of you, and again, especially Anna, since you've been following this so closely, what you expect to happen next. I mean, one thing that I found really notable about the government's uh, you know request to keep the grand jury report secret uh, is because uh, it was important to protect the rights of potential defendants. And so I think that obviously led to a lot of speculation about who these potential defendants are and whether that includes Trump. And if Trump, then then what is he a defendant for? You know, can we read anything into that uh, other than there are some potential defendants, but who knows who they are? I think that we, I think it's been fairly clear that Fonnie Willis has her sights set on Trump and that he's been a, a major focus of the investigation. I think that at this point, I I feel that it is likely that Trump uh, could be indicted, but I also am not sure if it will happen immediately or if there will be a kind of sequencing to the charges because maybe she wants to try to flip some people. So you might see some of the fake electors uh, charged in an initial round and then, and then maybe later on some of the kind of bigger fish uh, like Trump. So I, I mean, I'm not entirely sure. If I had to guess, I would say that based on kind of the way she's done some of these RICO cases in the past, she likes to kind of do it all in, in one swoop. So maybe those cases could tell us something about what we're going to see here, but I, I'm not sure. But I mean, Alan, you're right. Like, one of the major takeaways from that hearing is just the fact that future defendants implies that it is very, very likely that we're going to see someone and and multiple people in, indicted. 
So continuing the show on an unfortunately somewhat more somber topic, uh, we also wanted to talk about the murder of Tyree Nichols by police in Memphis, Tennessee. So at this point, I believe uh, five officers have been charged with second-degree murder, among other offenses. Two additional officers, I believe, have been dismissed and are under investigation for misconduct. Um, and we are once again having a conversation, as they like to say, about police brutality and police violence, particularly against Black people and Black men uh, specifically. I will say, I think they're one of the strange things about this particular incident is how choreographed the release of the video documentation happened to be. Um, and I am curious what you all made of that. Um, it did seem like officials were really sort of trying to get out ahead of potential protests and unrest. And it did turn out that um, all demonstrations were peaceful. I don't know whether or not that was connected to the, the lead up or not. That's only obviously one part of the story. There's a much bigger story here about what police reform would look like and if it's actually possible at this point. Alan, let me start with you. Yeah. So, so I mean, so a couple of thoughts, right? So first, it's just awful. Um, that's kind of the most important thing. Second is, you know, I do think, I mean, this is so depressing to say, but there is something of a playbook at this point in terms of how to deal if you are a police chief or a mayor with these sorts of police killings. Now, you know, to say there's a playbook makes it sound like it's a media exercise. And of course, in some respects it is. But I think this is also an indication that the institutions are very slowly recognizing, however, that this is not an issue that that can be hushed up, that institutions have to go on the offensive, for lack of a better term, when these sorts of events happen. And that involves releasing video, taking very swift action, right? You know, you're not, you know, one thing that's notable is these these police officers were like, immediately fired, very quickly arrested, very quickly charged, you know, additional individuals, both in police and the um, EMS, uh, who didn't intervene, you know, quickly enough or properly or at all, um, were also quickly put on on leave. So there is much less of the sort of usual institutional cover up and delay that that you have. Now, to be clear, and this is one challenge of making any generalizations in America because of how local and diffuse policing is, there are still plenty of police departments where this would not happen. Um, if you look, and this is obviously a, a very different situation, but if you look at you know how the police dealt with the uh, Uvalde school shooting and the, and the poor performance of the police there, right? There, it's been much less of a, we made a mistake, we're going to take accountability for it. Um, but I, I, I do think that that's sort of, that's, that's one thing to keep in mind. You know, I, I think that there's also, there's also a, a very unhelpful side conversation right now that is happening about what it means and what we should take away from the fact that Tyree Nichols, of course, was black, but also all of the police officers who killed him were also black. And that has led to this, I think, again, not super helpful conversation about, is this white supremacy? You know, could it be, how can it be white supremacy if all the individuals are black versus, well, you can have structures of white supremacy and we can have a kind of conversation about, about that. It does seem to detract from the much more pressing question of what to do next. And, and here, right, I mean, I think you have, well, I mean, you have, you have three camps. 
I think, uh, as you always have in situations. You know, one camp is, says nothing is wrong. If people didn't resist the police, there wouldn't be police violence. I mean, it's a pretty awful, I think, quite discredited line of argumentation. But I think you do have to mention it because it is still quite pronounced, you know, not just in police departments, um, but also on, you know, some parts of the, the political right. Putting that to aside, then you have the two the, the 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 two positions that try to be responsive to the problem. One is we might think of as various types of police abolition, defund the police. You know, we can argue about what those labels are, but you know, fundamentally, it's an argument that what we need is less police in some version. And then the third camp, which is I guess where I would put myself in, is that policing is here to stay. It is a necessary government service, including and sometimes especially for the very same communities that are often over-policed. They are simultaneously under-policed when it comes to the police actually solving violent crime in those communities. And that what you need is a wholesale reconstruction of the police. And so in that, there's some commonality with the abolish the police folks. But where the difference, of course, is what you're going to end up with is not an absence of police, but probably more police numerically, and much more spending on police. And that gets into the question of police professionalization, uh, which we can talk about as a potential very long-term way of dealing with this problem and uh, you know, what we can learn from other countries. You know, I think this is one interesting case where folks on the political left who tend to often be very interested in looking at other countries, especially in, let's say, Western Europe and kind of uh, the Scandinavia and stuff like that for models of how to do things in America, um, have actually been ignoring some pretty obvious lessons for what the European model tells us about policing. Um, because, of course, in Europe, there are actually far more police than there are in the United States, and they spend much more money on the police because of the increased training. And so I think it's an interesting blind spot on some parts of the, the left that is worth exploring. Sorry, that that was a kind of a big thought vomit of of depressing vibes. No, Alan, I actually think that was a really useful uh, way of kind of framing and thinking about things. You know, the other aspect though, I, I think is worth putting in there is that we tend to respond and think about these problems with a very kind of top-down measure saying, well, if police departments did more like this, more, more like that, there might be less incidents like this, better ways to handle it. To some degree, I think that's true. But it's strange in our country in particular, policing is a highly local endeavor in a lot of ways that are highly problematic, but other ways are unavoidable, operating on very different tax bases, operating in some ways in a lot of different communities that think about policing, engaging with policing in really different ways. And and that strikes me as as one size fits all solutions can be a little bit challenging to think of. Like I think there are a lot of solutions that have broad application, like body cameras have been revolutionary and mandating them is a very good step uh, that I think probably has near universal application. But I think there are systemic management and social engagement and kind of the social role of police problems that are really different to community to community and probably will change over time within different communities depending on challenges they face that require a more flexible approach. And how we handle this, I don't really know. One thing in in my mind, though, that, that just stands out about this is that the thing that in my mind stands out about this environment is that we're still operating in a situation where the legal accountability mechanisms are extremely low in terms of for the broader police department or for, for broader county. We have a lot of protections for individual officers. Of course, there's qualified immunity, which we know is a legal doctrine that is brought into a lot of these decisions. 
there are, you know, civil causes of action and actions that are taken against police departments and other actions to some extent. But I wonder if this isn't a situation where we should really start thinking about the incentives that we provide to not just police officers, but to a broader extent, bigger police departments, and then maybe more so localities, municipalities, and state authorities that so often are in the political oversight roles of these institutions by shifting the cost to them to give them that kind of investment and require them to say, you actually really need to think about and monitor and oversee how these groups operate. Um, I mean, that is how we deal with with relative effectiveness, not perfect effectiveness, a lot of other high-risk endeavors, whether it's driving to, you know, hospital management and healthcare malpractice, right? Is civil liability and then insurance schemes and then distribution of costs really is something that plays really strongly in there. But that seems less to be the case in this sort of environment. And I, I would like to see kind of more thinking, or at least want to do some more thinking myself about ways we might be able to build civil liability accountability mechanisms, maybe in more next to, you know, federal civil rights division sort of work, which is very important, but has limited application just because of resources as political constraints on it, uh, and the other tools that we've seen brought to bear on this so far. Considering the kind of need for incentives for municipalities and localities, do, do you feel that changing or reforming qualified immunity would in some way help with that? Because so often there are these indemnity, I I mean, I think there are like statistics that like cops are like 90 to something percent of the time indemnified by the municipality. So I, I mean, I'm just curious to hear if you think that that is one way to kind of change those incentives. So that is my understanding as well. I, I did not want to jump into it because I have not checked that and I want to make sure. But yeah, my understanding is a big root of this problem is qualified immunity and state law. You know, state laws have different approaches to qualified immunity. We think of it in the federal doctrine. Not all states have qualified immunity, although many of them have similar sort of immunity doctrines, particularly around policing. And courts just generally tend to be very resistant to second guessing policing decisions in a way that has become even more pronounced, at least at the federal level in the last couple of decades. Uh, and that I think is a little, is, is a problematic because essentially you have now municipalities and other groups having an incentive to say, we like qualified immunity because it keeps us off the hook. And then it keeps these other police officers off the hook. But if they were on the financial hook, frankly, for their police officers, I, I don't think you could get police officers without some degree of indemnification, honestly, for a lot of their conduct. And so those costs are going to get passed back to municipalities and state governments then you know you might have an incentive to say okay well if we really want our tax base to remain in place and if we want to have a more effective police force like we need to figure out ways to keep the costs down from civil liability and other things that arise from police brutality and police misconduct and so ultimately you you do have to see the shift of costs actually go back to the people that creating the permission structure that allows police departments to move in these sorts of directions when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Yeah, I, I tend to think that qualified immunity is not – red herring is overstating it. It's a problem and it should be reformed. I think more because of how, frankly, offensive it is rather than um, necessarily what it would meaningfully do to police incentives. Mostly because I think that really the the front end training and, man- and oversight of police departments is probably I think, be more important to preventing these sorts of things than necessarily costly and time consuming litigation after the fact. Though again, I'm, I'm sure that has its place. And, and I think there are kind of two different dimensions as to how you have to think about this problem. Sort of one is what sorts of reforms do we actually want? And the second is at what level of the government do we want them? Um, you know, I think the level of government question is frankly a lot easier than the what sort of reforms we want. It seems pretty obvious that local communities and cities are just not equipped to do this. And there's just no reason to think that they would be frankly equipped to do this. Probably federalizing police, you know, nationalizing police is not in the cards for both political and maybe constitutional reasons. But there's just, I think, no reason why police should not be fundamentally state-run with a huge amount of oversight. Um, And even if you couldn't force federalization of police, you can de facto do a lot of that by bribing police departments with federal funds in exchange for certain types of oversight. And look, at the end of the day, if it really matters to people to have like a local sheriff or whatever, I mean, I guess we can still have that. But I think if you're going to have a situation in which police operate at such a local level, they're just going to inevitably outmaneuver the the people at the local level that are trying to to regulate them. You know, as to the question of sort of what kind of reform, I mean, I, I think I think I think both the left and the right in in many ways have kind of fallen into the same blind spot, which is I think neither the left nor the right want to recognize that policing is in some sense not fundamentally different than any other coercive use of government authority. And the right doesn't want to recognize that because it doesn't want big government regulating aggressive policing. The left doesn't want to recognize that because the left is generally okay with government, you know, big government action. And it doesn't want to legitimize the idea that policing is something that you just need to have in a society. And that, you know, maybe hundreds of years from now, we will have a utopian society in which we can get away without police. I don't think we're anywhere near that right now. And and so I think you have the situation in which neither side wants to recognize that what you need is just to kind of profoundly professionalize and rebuild the police kind of along the lines that we have done in done so in American history with respect to the military, which has come in waves. And frankly, that we've actually done so with respect to the police, right? Policing violence is a huge problem today. But if you look at the statistics, right, um, and Noah Smith has done some interesting you know, writing, writing on this, it's substantially less than it was in the 1960s, for example. And there are many reasons for that, which is, again, not to say that it's been a solved problem. It obviously isn't. Um, but you can make progress through more professionalization, but you have to keep investing resources into this. And, and I think until the left recognizes that, I just don't see that they're going to have anything productive to say about this problem, because just angrily saying defund the police, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I perhaps unsurprisingly think that you're oversimplifying a rich and complex field of debate within 
what you've identified here as the left. I mean, set, setting that aside, because I mean, to I, be clear, like I've read a lot of the rich and complex hundred page Law Review articles. Yeah, well, about you were this, oversimplifying like, it here. I don't think I am, to be honest. Like, I think uh, at the end of the day, I think at the end of the day, there's a lot of we need to get rid of the police, and then there's just like a big question mark as to what do we do then. There's a lot of hand waving about a bunch of other stuff, but like it just not. It, I just I don't think it's it's. It, it, there's just a lot of head waving, frankly. That's fine. I'm just saying I think police abolitionism is an idea that's worth taking seriously and thinking through. Quint is literally waving her hands right now. I just had to point that out. <laughs> <laughs> um, and But also when you say the left, not everybody on the left is an abolitionist. Um, and there are plenty of people who would advocate for reforms or within the existing system or reforming the system, but keeping it in some shape or something like that. The separate point that I was going to make here is that when we talk about the role of the federal government, I think it's also worth pointing out what tools we know they already have in the toolbook. So I recently learned because of this that the the Memphis Police Department has been under a consent decree since 1978 because of its surveillance of Black activists during the civil rights movement. And one of the things that we saw during the Trump administration is that the Justice Department hugely rolled back its use of consent decrees. I think even tried to get Baltimore police out of a dissent decree that the city actually said, no, we'd, we'd rather keep this, please and thank you. And the Justice Department under Biden has been more aggressive in kind of using those tools again. So I, I also think that one additional factor here is when we talk about oversight of policing at local, state, federal level, that there's become this kind of ping-ponging between Republican and Democratic administrations, where the Republican administrations just take their hands totally off and let cops do whatever. And that I think probably makes it harder to really use the Justice Department in the way that it can and should be used in terms of providing actual oversight and governance through these processes. And just to be clear, Quinta, it's actually sort of in some ways even worse than as you've described it, because not only is there this ping-ponging between Democratic and Republican administrations, but for a long time, administrations of both parties were basically taking surplus military gear and sending them to the police. And like, Whatever you think the police need, and you know, we can have a debate. Like they probably don't need tanks and rocket launchers. Like it's just not super necessary. Um, you know, that has just fueled this warrior cop culture that has been super unhelpful. So, you know, when I say we need more federal oversight, you know, I, I should be clear that the, the the recent history of federal oversight has not actually been that great. So we need to have oversight over the federal oversight of police. So, I mean, I think that really gets back to the point that I was trying to get at when I when I talk about civil liability. Any kind of top-down approach is not going to be super effective, both because of the localization and because the incentives just aren't there for, or frankly, and in a lot of ways, legal capacity because of our you know deeply entrenched federal values around particularly like a lot of the issues police deal with. It has limited capability to really be implemented effectively, and certainly not in the long term, barring a you know, very substantial cultural and political shift among Americans um, and American politicians. And this is not just a, a, a partisan issue as easily, frankly, like the Democratic Party in the 1990s, not very good on these issues at all, and did a lot of things very, very bad. Um, so we like to think of it in terms of Republican, Democratic terms, it's actually not that easy. It's much more about much broader cultural views that often have, you know, tang- different tangents in both parties. 
in my mind, again, that's why ultimately at a certain point you need to have a bit of a grassroots stick, not just carrots to, to hit these people with. And that's why it all comes back to civil liability and ways to distribute it. That can feed into federal regulation. Of course, federal government can preempt you know, different types of civil liability. It can provide safe harbors. It can provide its own indemnification and tie conditions to it. But having that stick out there it's a big deal because right now, really, the only means of trying to get to these police departments is the carrot approach, is the federal funding with conditions approach. And the federal government's willingness to provide funding for anything these days outside of you know the military and a few other things is very come and go. And it's not, uh, I think, a formula for super effective policymaking over the long term. I mean, on the on the issue of sort of comparative studies of policing in Europe versus the United States, I guess I genuinely do not know much about those studies. And this is a real question. One thing that I've been curious about is that I know there's there's some research on sort of thinking about the United States not as best compared to other wealthy, generally wealthy Western European countries, but compared to uh, other countries in the Americas as a colonial society, right, that's built with one sort of class and race layering itself in various ways systematically on top of the labor of others. And so that that changes a number of societal dynamics. And then in understanding ourselves as Americans, we might do better to look at Latin America. I'm thinking about policing in Latin America right now because Peru has been seeing some really violent protests um, where the violence was perpetrated by the police on the protesters. And so I'm genuinely asking what you think about that and if that's addressed in the comparative studies at all. Yeah, so I, I don't know if it's addressed in the comparative studies, just because I haven't dug in that deeply in this literature. I guess what I would say is not that I would object to that sort of analysis. That seems quite plausible. It just strikes me as somewhat orthogonal to the issue. And this is a little bit of the problem I have with accounts of policing that try to root it in American white supremacy. And it's not that they're wrong. Like They are definitely right. Like I want to be very clear about that fact. You know, they are right about the history and they are right continuing to this day about the disparate impact. It's just that I don't know what you're supposed to do next with that analysis, right? Um, and, and there's a point at which I think the historical unearthing, while a very important point just as a matter of like knowledge and accuracy, can get in the way of, well, what do you do next? Because whatever the reasons for our current situation, it is our current situation. And so the, the, the problem, I think, with not looking at, you know, Western Europe, because as you might correctly point out, well, Western Europe policing wasn't built on a culture of subordinating, you know, one race under another. You then cut yourself off from what I think is still ultimately the most important question, which is, okay, how do we fix this mess that we are in? And I think that's, that's more my point. But I welcome you know, analysis of our situation as sort of, again, more, more akin to a colonial racial domination caste society than, you know, Finland. Well, from one F word to another, let's talk about Facebook. Former <laughs> President Trump... <laughs> I was wondering what you're going to do. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. There you go. That was pretty good. Former President Trump recently has regained his status, his most vaunted status as 
a profile holder on the platform Facebook and the platform Instagram, both of course owned by parent company Meta. Meta has now revoked the two-year, almost two-year ban that former President Trump or more than two-year ban that former President Trump had operated under since the January 6th insurrection, um, which where they had prohibited him from both platforms because of the role he played in fomenting violence around those events. And they have said that they're letting him back on, but that repeals may be recurring in the future if conduct promoting violence or engaging in other prohibited conduct continues. They also know that they've installed some new guardrails in their mind uh, that they lay out saying, here are the ways we're going to think about former President Trump and perhaps other people in similar positions deploying these types of speech in the future. Quentin, let me start with you about this, because I know you've written about this and thought about this a bit. Just to start with, from a kind of 10,000 foot view, what do you make of this decision on Meta's part, whether it's right-minded, wrong-minded, and what impact it's likely to have in terms of how former President Trump uses this platform or not? Aye, aye, aye. So before we get into it more, I think it's first off worth contextualizing how Trump used Facebook and how it was different from his Twitter use and why that matters, right? I don't think this... Facebook was never the platform where he kind of gave you a window into his innermost thoughts in the way that he did with Twitter. It wasn't his megaphone in the same way. What Facebook was really valuable for for him was fundraising. That is the most valuable thing. And there's actually been some interesting reporting recently that his uh, 2024 campaign has a bit of a money hole problem. Um, And so I do wonder if Facebook letting him back on is going to change that. Um, Just to sort of put that on the table as what we're talking about when we talk about the effects of Trump being on Facebook. I'm less worried about the sort of spreading of misinformation, although, you know, who knows, um, and more thinking about the money aspect. In terms of how the company made its decision, I mean, with Facebook right now, you end up with this weird kind of trying to parse, you know, the different factions within the company and how decisions were made and what to make of it. This news came out while I was busy reading through a draft report that was produced by the January 6th Select Committee staff on the role of social media and the insurrection. And one of the things that that report really shows is this constant push and pull between the people at the company who are working on uh, what's called trust and safety, civic integrity, sort of, you know, making sure that the platform is a good environment and the business side of the company that wants more ads, wants more interactions, doesn't want political blowback, um, and that there's this real push and pull and that what happens before January 6th is that the political and policy people basically win in getting uh, Facebook to you know not take posts down, keep Trump on, that kind of thing. And so Facebook has, or Meta, excuse me, has put this forward as a sort of, you know, an example of principled thinking, you know, this is not just like surprise, we took this step, but it's in response to a decision of the Facebook oversight board that gave them a six month deadline. Then, you know, they, they've put out the statement saying we're going to let him back on, but with all of these sort of fail safes, and we can talk about the sort of escalating strike system that they've built in. And the, the board put up a sort of, you know, self-congratulatory statement about how great this whole thing is. But another way to read it is that the person who made this announcement is Nick Clegg, who I believe is the global head of public policy 
um, and former senior UK government minister. And he is on the sort of policy and he is on the, you know, political wheeling and dealing end. And so you can also look at this and and see it as a totally cynical decision that they wanted, you know, there's a Republican House, they wanted to get in good with, you know, Jim Jordan and Kevin McCarthy and not get yelled at. And this is where they they ended up. So I could see an argument for it being principled. I could see an argument for it being cynical. I will say at the end of the day, I can, some of the reasoning makes sense, but it does kind of leave a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, that, that's really helpful. And I would just say, I, I think it's just overdetermined. I think it's both principled and cynical. I just think this is one of these areas in which it turns out that what I think, like, if you gave Zuckerberg truth serum, like what he thinks is the right answer just happens to be what is also politically and economically advantageous for for him and for uh, for the company. This isn't a difficult issue, of course, because you know what you think Facebook ought to do it's just not a matter of neutral principles. Like it just comes down fundamentally to like how you balance the priors of keeping a authoritarian would be auto coup crazy person <laughs> off a platform versus uh, your view of whether or not these platforms should ultimately be quote unquote neutral. Though that's a very loaded term with respect to major public figures. I mean, ultimately I come down on the side that Trump should be let back on meta Right. Um, again, I, I don't, it's like not the strongest, it's not the most strongest held opinion I have because I recognize the downsides. I just don't see how in the long run you can have these public square constituting platforms that are going to kind of permanently take sides in the big political debates of, of the day. You know, just to add like maybe a little more context uh, to what to what Quinta provided, I mean, you know, I, I think here it's interesting to reflect on maybe what the Brazilian case told Meta or, or what lessons Meta took from the Brazilian case. So of course, as, as probably people know, right on January 8th, a bunch of, in, in a kind of an, a, a bizarre echo almost of January 6th, a bunch of uh, supporters of, of uh, Jair Bolsonaro went and ransacked the three branches of government in uh, Brasilia because uh, they're upset that he lost to Lula. And I think one thing that's interesting, and this is made really well by uh, Casey Newton, who uh, has the who runs the platformer Substack and has a great uh, uh, podcast on tech issues. In Brazil, you have much more control over social media than you do in the United States, and so they actually so so in Brazil, the social media companies actually were much more aggressive about taking down you know, pro Bolsonaro stuff, and even with those attempts, it just didn't work because a lot of Brazilians really like. Jared Bolsonaro, unfortunately. And one thing that Meta may have taken from that, whether or not they actually took it or now they're just going to use it as kind of a, a justification, is their ability to really change the behavior of the most extreme wing of any political movement is quite limited. And if it's in fact limited, then there's kind of no reason to do it because I think people all recognize that even if it's for a good cause, the deplatforming of a major political figure. There just is an anti-democratic cost there. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to think it's kind of interesting what I think Meta's doing here, um, right? Because I think there's it's a mixture of cynical and cynicism and principle. I think that's a good way to think about it. They seem to basically be trying to level set with a new policy expectations, right? Their new guardrails they're installing basically say, particularly for politicians, kind of for everyone, but particularly for politicians, and they're not this express about it, so maybe I'm misreading it, but I read them as basically saying, look, we're going to focus on problematic content 
and people who get problematic content may still get suspended again if you keep doing these sorts of things like incurring violence. And that repeat offenders, particularly politicians, could face longer term suspensions or potentially even, I guess, permanent suspensions or effectively permanent suspensions, like long term enough that, you know, they'd outlive your political relevance. And that's kind of interesting because it basically is saying, hey, Mr. Trump, we're going to give you one more shot to actually play by the rules. And if not, now you know going in, you can't say these things or use things these ways. Although it's a little unclear what exactly is, is where exactly the line is and what's prohibited or what's not. But we have some sense of the general direction. If you keep violating these policies, then you could end up back in Facebook jail, which is a permanent ban or something, an extended ban, right? So it is a little cynical in that it lets Trump back on now. It gets them out of a political problem. It lets them say, hey, look, you know, we're being equally fair to everybody. As the election gets closer in 2024, Trump is at least right now able to use this as much as any other politician. And that's a little bit cynical, but there's also a principled element to it. I do think there's democratic cost problems when you are talking about a prominent political figure. But it is doesn't mean that Trump might not end up in the same place again. It's kind of probably comes down to a little bit about, you know, what the rest of his organization looks like, his incentives to do so, to some degree, his own self-restraint. Although, as Quinta noted, you know, this was not like Twitter. This is not him shooting off Facebook messages from his phone. It's slightly more calculated use always from the outset. So, uh, you know, I'm curious to see where it goes. The question I have is is maybe what this means for other figures who are even more on the peripheral or maybe even more directly engaged in, in hate speech, you know, if they have a political relevance. So, you know, we can imagine political figures being more expressed than former President Trump, who always, you know, nodded and winked and would use somewhat, uh, not always, but often would use somewhat, you know, language that's a little hints at things or suggests things more than outright says it uh, in terms of uh, both promoting violence or some of the things that approach uh, hate speech. But all people aren't that restrained. And the question I have is, is really like, are we saying those folks are less or more subject to restrictions than political figures. It reads to me like somewhat less, at least for long-term suspensions. Although at a certain point, you know, why, why is that? I'm not sure that makes sense in the long run. And then also, is there a line where we say people no longer have this entitlement? Is it when they face criminal charges? Is it when they have been convicted of certain actions? Facebook does not have a problem, or Meta, I should say, does not have a problem doing that for foreign officials and governments. If foreign officials are sanctioned by the United States government or put on the FTO or STGT list, they are banned from Facebook and Instagram, even where that's not required by US law, which in some cases it isn't, at least not for all content. So, and that's a different approach, it's worth noting, than Twitter and other platforms take that are much more permissive to groups like that. So, you know, there's a lot more to be worked out in this. And I'm just kind of curious, we're really only seen beginning a slice of this and thinking in the context of Trump. And I'm much more curious about what it means more broadly for these other groups that may be more significant in terms of like Facebook actually being a meaningful platform for them uh, and a way for them to build network and build support. Yeah. I mean, Anna, I'm curious for your take, because one of the things that we've seen you know, recently in the last year, couple of years, is that Trump without social media has just been much less of a political force. You know, he, I guess he's been rage truthing, but he hasn't had as much of a megaphone. Do you think that now that he's has more access to Facebook, to Twitter, like, would you expect that to sort of change the political dynamics anyway in, in Georgia, if he's able to kind of yell more loudly to more people about the investigation there? Yeah, I actually, I've I've been thinking about this a bit, and I think it relates to some of these 
There are some perspectives that I've seen floating out there, some articles that are kind of like, well, you know, Trump isn't as popular as he once was. He doesn't have as much reach as he once did. And I can say like anecdotally, I mean, I spend a lot of time, I'm from a very rural area of Georgia, North Georgia. It's like 94, 95% Trump Republican country. You know, whenever I go back home, I, I talk a lot with friends and family members who are or once were Trump supporters. And he's really and again, this is totally unscientific, um, but he's really lost a lot of support and a lot of reach. And I am kind of sympathetic to the view that like, it maybe won't even really matter if Trump gets back on Facebook, because he just doesn't, he seems to have lost something and some kind of momentum. And at the same time, Facebook has has lost some of its you know, momentum in terms of the kind of product it is and and how much people use it. But it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? Like, is it that Trump was booted off of Twitter and Facebook, and so then he's going to make his triumphant return and, you know, get some of that momentum back? I don't know. But I, I can say that I think from talking to people who once were Trump supporters in Georgia, they are tired of hearing him talk about the 2020 election. Uh, people have said, like, he needs to get over it and just stop talking about it. So and and that's like, again, totally anecdotal. But that's kind of what I've been hearing whenever I do go back home. You know, I'll say the, the one thing I'll put in this story, which I think weighs and maybe not against the relevance of social media for President Trump, but to think about what his case study maybe meets for the broader phenomenon doesn't mean is that, frankly, just a lot has changed for former President Trump in the last two years, right? He's the former president now. That's the biggest one. He doesn't have the bully pulpit. He isn't the focus of his party's political future. In fact, many people now have an incentive to try and move past him in various ways, although certainly other people like Lindsey Graham are still you know, at least trying to bring him to events and use him as a point for garnering political support, fundraising support. And so you know, I think it's easy to maybe draw too much causality to or too much of a relationship between the social media bans and all the other th- ways that former President Trump's status and relationship has changed with his supporters, with the broader Republican Party, with a lot of other parts of the country. Um, you know, without the bully pulpit, he's not doesn't have the attention of mainstream media uh, like he used to, despite his antagonistic relationship with him. Now, to get a kind of broad, fawning audience, he has to go to even more peripheral, far right wing outlets. And then, as is so often the case with Donald Trump, he ends up with these weird reciprocal relationships where he starts channeling messages that are of particular interest to them, but that might not play as broadly, that play into conspiracy theories and you know hate speech and these other things much more than he did even a couple of years ago. New York Times had an interesting piece on this a few years ago. All that to say, you know, thinking of this through the Trump lens, I think, is, is maybe the wrong lens to think about it through, because I'm just not sure he's actually the case study that matters more. These policies are going to have much bigger ramifications elsewhere, and and you know I'm hoping people will will see some other case studies come forward about uh, really tell us what the ramifications might be. Well, folks, that is all the time we have for today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over in the week to come. Alan, what do you have for us this week? So my object lesson is the new TV show that my wife and I are enjoying very much, The Last of Us on HBO. This is maybe the first actually good television show or movie or 
anything based off a video game. Uh, people have been trying for decades and they're always terrible. Uh, but a combination of the excellent source material. I have not played The Last of Us, but it is apparently a really, really good video game. You've obviously not seen the Super Mario Brothers movie with John Leguizamo from like 1991, uh, which is well, no, awesome. that is and worth watching categorically, <laughs> just for okay. the record. No, that's fair. That's fair. I do. I actually, he, he makes a good Mario brother. But this show is great. I mean, it is it is your super standard post-apocalyptic zombie flick. But it's just excellent. It's tense. It's exciting. It's like a little gross, but it's not too gross. Uh, it involves cordyceps, which is definitely the scariest possible reason to have a zombie apocalypse. Uh, and it is really uh, excellent. Yeah, I will say I find the whole post-apocalyptic genre incredibly exhausting. And the degree to which it gets remade more than almost any other sort of like genre in Hollywood movies, mostly because I think they're really cheap because you just kick the bejesus out of some old cars and dirty everyone up and all of a sudden you're in a post-apocalypse. There's there's a great story about how with the the Cormac McCarthy's uh, The Road was adapted into a movie. They just filmed it along the Pennsylvania Turnpike in the winter because they were like, this looks (laughs) post-apocalyptic. I, I will say, I, I had an experience, this is going to be a slightly longer story, but it's worth it, believe me. I had an experience when I moved to New York City right after college. I'd only been to New York like three or four times. I was walking from my apartment in like Soho to uh, the Kmart, I think it was, at Astor Place, and walked by what used to be a Tower Records, like famous Tower Records there that's all dirtied up and sudsed up and covered in like tumbleweeds and dirt. And there was a cab that was just abandoned on the street. The wheels were ripped off. There was a bush going through the uh, going through the windshield. And I was like, this filthy city, what is New York doing? What's happening to this place? Turns out they were filming I Am Legend on that block. Uh, and so it was all set pieces for this post-apocalyptic movie. And I was like, what's happened in New York? Come on, guys. Got to pull your act together. But regardless, I am intrigued by this one. I think the people doing it are very good. Uh, and I'm I'm intrigued to jump back in uh, to this one. In addition, also to Station Eleven, HBO is doing two post-apocalyptic shows at once. Um, so intriguing, intriguing match there. Quinto, what do you have for us? Yeah, I will say I cannot consume post-apocalyptic media of any kind, especially if it involves zombies. It freaks me out too much. Barely made it through the Station Eleven book. Seems like The Last of Us is good. I'm happy for you. I will never be able to watch it. Uh, Instead, I have been enjoying fiction about uh, smaller personal tragedies. I have been uh, trying to read more fiction, and one of the books that I recently picked up is Dear Life, which is the last short story collection released by the Canadian author Alice Munro from 2012, which I have never read. I think probably Alice Munro is at this point pretty well known, but she's pretty great. Highly recommend. It's just, she's incredibly precise and it's just really fascinating to watch someone who is like so clearly at the top of her game as an artist, just like do what she does really, really, really well. Um, so the book that I have been reading specifically is Dear Life, but honestly, I recommend anything that Alice Munro had ever written. If you're interested in reading about the muted personal crises of faith and tragedies of emotionally repressed Canadians. There is no such thing as too much Alice Munro. She is it's so true. amazing. I was going to say a national treasure, but a global treasure because I'm not Canadian, so I can't claim her. National treasure, just not our national treasure. Just not our national Continental treasure, exactly. I think after NAFTA, we can claim the Canadian national treasure. That's part of the deal. <laughs> For my object lesson, I will take things in a far less cultural context or in intellectual context because I've discovered recently 
that I have a tool that I use in my kitchen more than anything else before. And it's something that's not standard in American kitchens. And I realized as I was looking over my dishes that I was cleaning last night that I had used like 18 of them in the prior 12 hours, 424 hours, because they're so functional and effective and multi-purpose. And they're wonderful. I thought I'd share it and encourage you all to check it out. I'm talking about, of course, chopsticks. I bought a pack of like eight fiberglass chopsticks like six months ago, and I just never stopped using them. They're like the perfect stirs. If you're good with chopsticks, you can eat with them. You can use them as like, you know, ways to artfully arrange food. If you're plating something, you can use them as ways to get hot food out of an oven. They're absolutely phenomenal. You get the kind that like doesn't melt, doesn't break. They're amazing. And I think there's like $12 on Amazon. So it just kind of revolutionized all the way. I do a lot of things in the kitchen, I have to say, and I thought I would share. Kind of random, but I talked about a pineapple core on here before. Why not? Chopstick seems up the alley. It's the opposite of a unitasker. It's a you know the ultimate multitasker. I love it. Scott discovers chopsticks in the year of our Lord 2023. I like chopsticks. They never occurred to me how useful they are. You really need the plastic ones to make a big difference. No splinters. You know they're reusable. Like that's I think the real difference maker for me here. No, chopsticks are fabulous. I and I found that they are the perfect the perfect utensil for making a French omelet. Um, in mm. a nonstick pan, so you can you, know, you could because you can beat the eggs with them, and then that like process of having to constantly stir the eggs as the kind of curd forms, and then the the delicate flipping over to make that French omelet. You know, I I bought I once I bought a kind of silicon egg omelet fork, and like that's fine, but just chopsticks are they're perfect for the for the job. You should try it, Scott. Oh, I will. I'm excited. Yeah. If you watch a lot of these videos, you always see like these super high-end chefs with $800 pans pull out a plastic fork uh, and like out of a deli container and start using that to do the omelet. And it always looks very classless. And I'm like, you only make this omelet to impress somebody. So give me a break here. You're not going to use the plastic fork. So that's, that's a good alternative. I like that. Anna, what do you have to bring us home? I am going to bring us home with by staying with the post-apocalyptic TV show theme. I was going to say Station Eleven because the book and the television adaptation is incredible. And Quinta, if you are worried that the book was like a little bit too depressing for you, the TV show, I think it's important to say, is significantly different in terms of what happens and kind of just the whole vibe. Maybe not at the beginning, but I find it to be... I don't know, man. It's pretty depressing. (laughs) No, I found it to be so just beautiful and life-affirming and hopeful. I I truly, like, it's one of my all-time favorite shows now. And uh, I, Alan, I, I know that you'll maybe disagree, but I think it's way better than The Last of Us. But uh, if you don't want zombies and you don't want a pandemic and you still are interested in the post-apocalyptic genre, I would go for The Leftovers. It is a really great show that I just returned to after starting The Last of Us, actually. Um, And also just a really great story of people finding each other in the wake of something really awful happening. And it's weird and wacky and I think takes a lot more risks than kind of the classic like hero's journey, Last of Us story that we're seeing right now. Maybe I'll change my mind later as The Last of Us kind of continues, but uh, The Leftovers is, is a really great show. 
Interesting. It makes me nervous that in your 3L year last semester, you are turning to post-apocalyptic fiction. <laughs> I feel I feel like it makes me want to check on your feelings about the future. But other than that, uh, it sounds like <laughs> no, great no, no, the reason, but the reason that I like those two is because to me in the end, it's like it's there's stories of hope and not of despair. And so I like, I, trust me, try them. They're great. I will know. I just heard that HBO is also uh, has bought up the whole Emily St. John Mandel oeuvre and is now making TV shows also based off Glass Hotel and Sea of Tranquility. Okay, I did not like the Glass Hotel. I got it. I have not read the Glass Hotel. I yeah. liked the Sea of Tranquility. I didn't like it as much as Station Eleven, but I enjoyed it. But it's worth a read. It could be actually an interesting TV show. I, but you'd have to like kind of build it out a bit. Um, but I'm curious to see what they do with these translations because those strike me as even harder books to make shows out of. Um, but HBO Max is going for it. Um, it is truly the golden age of television. And on that note, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at RTL Security. Be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Anna Bauer, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. 